0: Hey, big crowd, huh? Yeah, now one of them's got a pot to piss in. I never should have let myself get talked into this dumb benefit. I could be making some real money tonight. All right, let's get this thing started.
1: fun this last week or weekend one morsel of fun
2: greg and i watched flash gordon together
1: all right how was that experience
2: i already showed it to him i showed it to him fairly shortly after we started seeing each other he he owns it on 4k i think owning flash gordon on 4k is kind of a waste
1: yes very much so
2: So, Flash Gordon is a movie that I have a surprisingly long history with. It is a movie that, in some areas, I would argue, benefits from a 4K remaster. And in some areas, is actively detracted by a 4K remaster. To the point that I think it turns out to be, you gained some and you lost some. And you wound up in the same place as Flash Gordon... Savior of the Universe edition (laughs) top-open DVD. Okay. Which, for those of you at home, it's a very elaborate, flashy, stupid DVD case. But also, because it is actively hanging on my wall, the fetish art pencil sketch of Sam Jones being strangled is uh, not in my DVD box. It's being used. It's busy. But the reason I know this movie exists is because I was really into Queen, like embarrassingly into Queen. Like I had no friends in middle school into Queen and Queen did all of the music for Flash Gordon. Yes. Flash! Ah, of the universe. dad about this we were at dinner earlier and he said never has a better band been wasted on a worse movie
1: wow what a take (laughs) that's a fucking take
2: and i don't fully agree with him but it's definitely a doozy of a movie
1: i had the thought when i watched this i'm not gonna lie there's no way that cat would like this movie if queen did not do the soundtrack
2: I think as long as the soundtrack maintained its, like, level of funkiness, I probably would like it. I think one thing that you, you forget about me often, Monfrère, is that I was a big, like, Rocky Horror Picture Show, campy, shitty movie person. <laughs> and I still am. And this definitely... straddles that line in a fun way. The conceit of this movie is it's 1980 and we are making a 1930s serial movie. Yeah. I eat that shit up. I love shit like that. I love 66 Batman because it's tongue in cheek and it knows it's making fun of already a kind of a stupid thing. I love shit that has a little bit of self-awareness to it.
1: But the point you made as far as would the movie be as funky if it wasn't for Queen... I don't think so. Like, the intro to this is pretty epic.
2: Oh, I fully agree. And I'm also a huge fan of the fact that in the actual released single version, there are pieces of dialogue from the film mixed in. So in the version that would play on the radio, you know, flash, ah, and there's a soul like, and it's dispatch war agent Ajax to bring back his body. Ah, Like, it's insane. This movie does not get made or have any success if Queen doesn't do the music. And I think that is because they knew this movie was not very good.
1: Yes. Um, Yes. That is very much true. Yes.
2: And the fact that the movie just goes, oh, let me get my coat of being bad and ugly and just like roll around in it. (laughs) I love it. I love it! But also, clearly it thought it was on to something, because if you know anything about garment construction, anything that those women wear took multiple hundreds of hours of (laughs) hand-beating. The thing that Max von Sundau is wearing, according to an article I read in the Flash Gordon magazine, which I have, because of course I have a copy of Science Fiction Monthly from... 1980, when Flash Gordon was coming out, was 270 hours of hand sewing and weighed 68 pounds. Jeez. But you look at it and you're like, yes, of course it does. Yes, of course it is.
1: They definitely paid attention to the craft of the film. I think that's unquestionable, but the the script, maybe they could have took a little more time with that.
2: The thing that I have realized with the benefit of hindsight is that they are making fun of Star Wars.
1: Hmm. Let's explain that theory a little bit more.
2: Yeah. So as Star Wars is earnest, this is sarcastic. As Star Wars is chaste, this is horny.
1: Hmm. This is a horny movie, boy. It
2: is a very horny movie. So basically, it is taking a look at the Star Wars worldview of space And is going, hmm, I don't think so. (laughs) And is basically making a world that is the direct opposition to Star Wars. Every planet you land on isn't going to welcome you, buddy. Especially not if you're handsome and blonde. (laughs) Every planet has its own complex ecosystem, jackass. (laughs) But also they never expand on that. (laughs) They're just like, stick your hand in the stump, motherfucker. And that's about the extent of the development that they get. Yeah. But also you can feel it's just kind of them directly going like, oh, so you think you're like going to go to Star Wars and everyone's going to be nice to you? No, bitch. (laughs) And as someone who has only now realized, if Star Wars is Dune, right, in a lot of ways, Star Wars is pretty much directly pulling from Dune. This is trying to pull from Buck Rogers with 1980 sensibility.
1: Okay, I think you're onto something. I think I agree with this theory of yours.
2: And so they're like, oh, 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 you wanted old science fiction? How about this, motherfuckers? And everyone's like, uh, uh
1: um... <laughs> <laughs> yes.
3: <laughs>
1: yeah. and,
2: and now, I think in a time where perhaps we're a little more cool with being weird and horny and also metaphors for the Cold War, we're like, fuck yeah! I went back and read some of the reviews from the time, and it seemed that nobody knew if it was being a parody or being serious. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: Roger begins with the big holiday film Flash Gordon. Well, Flash Gordon is a movie that doesn't just remind you of those Saturday matinee serials that Buster Crabb used to make back in the 1930s. This movie is practically a remake of them. I guess the Film's producers decided that since they couldn't compete with the sensational special effects of movies like The Empire Strikes Back, they wouldn't even try. Instead, in Flash Gordon, we get a tacky new color version of what almost looks like, what do you know, those space operas from the 1930s. A bizarre extravaganza that looks like the funny pages hit the fan. In the new version, Flash Gordon is a quarterback for the New York Jets. He and his girlfriend Dale Arden innocently stumble aboard a rocket ship piloted by the mad scientist Dr. Zarkov. (laughs) That spaceship going through the roof of that little model there looks about as realistic as the old Captain Video TV serial back on TV in the 50s. The spaceship crash lands anyway on Mongo in the domain of the evil Emperor Ming the Merciless. It's Max von Sydow as Ming the Merciless. He's come a long way since he used to work for Ingmar Bergman. (laughs) That scene pretty much gives you the flavor of Flash Gordon which is deliberately old-fashioned and corny Everybody stands around saying ridiculous things, wearing ridiculous costumes and capes and hats. The funny thing is, for all of its absurdity, I kind of like Flash Gordon. It's so silly, so outlandish, and so deliberately dim-witted that it's kind of fun. Well, I like what you describe in theory, a film that puts on the genre, makes Mm -hmm. fun of the science Mm -hmm. fiction film, and sure we could use that kind of a picture with the seriousness of the Star Wars picture and Star Trek and all that stuff. I just don't think this is the film. Uh,
2: I looked at the same film you did and had come to a totally different conclusion that the film starts out with cute characters. He's the quarterback, supposedly, for the New York Jets. She's a Mm -hmm. travel agent, Dale Arden, that is. A cute premise, sort of like Superman, putting on a little bit. Mm -hmm. Then it doesn't go anywhere for me. Uh, I thought of comparing this, let's say, to the movie Airplane, which made fun Mm -hmm. of the disaster pictures, and I don't think this uh, is anything like Airplane. Well,
0: this movie is not as good as Airplane, and I'm fond of it. I don't think it's great. I just sort of like it. But at least they didn't try to just outdo Star Wars. They took a slightly different approach. That would be For example, tough to do it. Well, it would.
2: And I get that. Yeah. But I also think you just have to lean in at some point and be like, well, Max von Sindow wants an Oscar. And Sam Jones, <laughs> Jones is just excited he was invited.
1: <laughs> Hilarious.
2: I think that he still thinks that that's maybe his magnum opus Oscar shot.
1: (laughs) I mean has he done anything else other than that? I I can't think of anything.
2: Not a ton but a lot of that was because he and Dino De Laurentiis apparently had like Falling Out. Okay. And De Laurentiis basically blacklisted him which in the 80s I can imagine that being basically impossible to come back from. Yeah. Because his name was on like everything. I think that Sam Jones delivers a very Brad Majors performance for, for those Rocky Horror Picture Show people. He really is just like straight up the middle, like, I'm a guy. <laughs> and he's, he's like so. kind of a meathead, but like it's cute most of the time. And all the times that it's not cute, he does other cute things to make up for.
1: So who's your actual favorite character in this movie?
2: Probably Aura.
1: Oh, Okay.
2: Timothy Dalton and Aura are like, I ship that couple super hard. I watched this movie for the first time when I was ten years old. Every time I see them like get together at the end and they're like holding hands and waving at everybody, I'm like, Yes. Okay. Because there's there is something about abuse victim trying to control what she can control. And in this case, it happens to be related to her sexuality yeah. and earnest guy who really loves her for who she is. That, like, hits all the nice serotonin buttons for me. I also think it's kind of (laughs) progressive in the way that it portrays her. Mm,
1: Extrapolate that.
2: Yeah, so she's, like, seems perma-horny, but then you kind of realize it's because she is not nearly as in control as the movie leads you to believe before then. Yeah. And that she is also a victim of her father, really, as much as anyone else. So what she can control is really only the way that men react to her. And so she has leaned in to making that part of her brand and part of how she she just expects to be interacted with. Yeah. And so by taking some ownership of that and not only by taking some ownership of that, but then realizing the error of her ways and going back to the one guy who has been her consistent heart and has loved her throughout all this. Yeah. I'm sure one could argue, like, oh, they moralize her and, like, put her away. But also, like, it shows that, like, recovery is possible. <laughs> and that even people who have been abused maybe deserve to be happy. <laughs> wild, I know.
1: Very wild, yes. I, I messaged you about halfway through the movie. I messaged you something on the lines of the narrative kind of wants you to not like her. But I was very much on board (laughs) I was very much on
2: board At the risk of sounding like an asshole That's probably because you're a man
1: Yes, yes, no, no Like, that's what it is
2: But watching it as a a lady person Her capability is always the thing that kind of takes me off guard At the end when she's in the orgy pit with everyone else (laughs) As soon as someone presents a plan that might work, she's back on board because she doesn't quit. She's super determined. Yeah. And there's something about that that, like, isn't common in women who wear bikinis in space movies usually. (laughs) And considering that this came, came way, way, way before Princess Leia and her space bikini, I do feel that that's worth acknowledging.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. And yes, And I like
2: the- Dale too, by the way. I think Dale's great.
1: Why do you think Dale's great?
2: Because she is a different type of woman who is not any more or less bad. She is also considered very attractive and she uses different areas of her wiles to kind of get what she needs. As much as Aura is distrustful, Dale is trustful, and that is not ever framed as a weakness. Yeah. The way that she immediately gets that, that servant girl to it's just us girls.
1: <laughs> to get her to drink the Molly water.
2: <laughs> her trust and her love is as wide and as vast as aura's is vacant. Yeah. And that's what is so cool. In We see two different cases of weaponized femininity, and neither of them are bad. They both get the guy at the end. They both get a happily ever after at the end. And sure, they're in skimpy outfits. They still win.
1: And also, Flash was in a leather boxer brief outfit. <laughs> so, so the and the, and the, uh, the uh, with the Hawkmen, they're continually nipples out the whole time. So, you know, it's, it's a little equal on that one, uh, the sexiness, I would say.
2: Yeah, I also asked Greg if I could convince him to walk around as the Flash Gordon in bondage with a bucket over his head. Uh, And he was like, no. And I was like, maybe? And he's like, maybe.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the second that they flashed him in the dungeon with the box spite helmet, I was like, oh, shit, this movie wants to fuck. Oh, shit.
2: Everyone. It wants to fuck everyone.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You had a lot of time to live with this movie and everything that you've said so far I definitely agree with. I enjoyed the movie. I enjoyed it for its silliness, but also I did enjoy the characters. I I did really like
2: Aurora.
1: Uh, I thought,
2: because she because she had nice titties or for other reasons. Please extrapolate. <laughs> I mean,
1: beyond the titties, <laughs> yes, I really did think that the way that she operated, like I said before, because likely it is because I am a man, the way that she operated, you know, she was kind of moving from man to man to really kind of accomplish her goals, and in a lot of senses, a lot of men would kind of take that, you know, she's, you know, uh, uh, she she can't she can't. Trick me with her sexual uh, femininity, you know, what the fuck is that, or whatever. But I'm just kind of looking at it as like she knows how to maneuver in a room full of people who may not even want to give her agency or Mm -hmm. who even doubt her intelligence in the first place. And I really appreciated that fact. (laughs) I think my favorite scene in the movie was when she was straddling. Flash, and mm-hmm. he had to he had to communicate.
2: Damn, <laughs> this girl is really turning me on. That
1: show's so funny. Because <laughs> how do you how do you not have that thought when you're trying to have telekinesis? <laughs> it's me, Flash.
0: Flash. Are you
3: oh, getting, you getting over, over? Over. Oh my head.
0: Oh, Flash, if it only was you.
3: She's not getting me.
0: Don't use your mouth. Use your brain.
3: I'm with you, Dale. Just concentrate hard and think to me. It's telepathy. Over. Can this be real? I saw you executed. I was saved. I'm still alive. Oh, thank God. Where are you? In a, rocket, in a rocket, racing to Arboria to, to, to get help. Are you okay? Are you okay? Over. Over. I'm locked in Ming's bed.
0: Fake him out. How?
3: Girls know how, Dale. It's been done to me. Fake him out till I get back. Over.
0: Uh, it's too dangerous for you here. You can't come back. Stay where you're oh really
3: safe. Oh, my God. This girl's really turning me on.
0: I didn't quite I didn't get that. Think it back. again.
3: Forget I thought it. It wasn't about you. Over.
2: What? I would also like to state for the record that this movie actually did pretty okay. It made its money back. Yeah. There was going to be a sequel. The falling out fell out between Sam Jones and and Dino De Laurentiis. Shame. But, you know, whatever happens. But it was like the seventh biggest movie of that December and like the 10th biggest movie of that year.
1: Yeah. I mean, it doubled its money. So. Yeah.
2: Watching it as a kid, I spent most of the time being bored because I was <laughs> not really picking up on what was happening. As yeah. a teenager, I was like, I can't tell. Is this <laughs> deliberate or did no one notice? Yeah. And now as an adult, I just take like a bunch of glee in it being like objectively kind of gross. Like, it's super fucking horny. <laughs> it's like, even even Ming in the opening scene, he's like, I like to play with my food before I eat it. And it's like, ah,
1: well, <laughs> And a white man, you know, playing a guy named Ming. So <laughs> I can't
2: get over that. <laughs> I would just like to state for the record that in the comics from the 30s, which these are based off of, Ming looks more like an alien than he does a, a... like. The idea is that he's an alien! And I guess they thought painting in blue would be off-putting? I don't know!
1: <laughs> oh, man. So, one of the curiosities I had about the movie, you remember when the scientist, he almost has his memory Dr. erased?
2: Starkov, who remembers the Second World War for some reason? Yes.
1: I took that as he was uh, at least young enough to survive the like concentration camps, but how well, does he?
2: So the first thing they they don't show the concentration camps. They just show the Nazis, and then it slam cuts to London, which implies that he was one of the German Jewish children who got out. Especially yeah. because you don't see his parents after that. So the implication is he got out, and his parents did not. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, Sorry. Go on. I've seen this movie too many times. Um. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. But (laughs) so it's kind of shitty that in his memories, the only thing he mostly recollects are horrible atrocities. Like his, his like, uh, was that his wife who accidentally drowned? He remembers (laughs) Hitler. He remembers a lot of fucked up shit. And how much would we pay to just have our memories fully erased of all trauma?
2: (laughs) But I also think the beginning of the movie doesn't work if he's not severely traumatized. Yeah. Like him, him yelling at the guy to like get in the rocket and shut the fuck up. Like really, it's not redeemable in the eyes of the movie if he isn't deeply traumatized.
3: I, know, I
1: hate that's...
2: saying it like that, but like it's the truth.
1: That is the truth. It's it's fucked up, but it's the truth. And I did appreciate his, I guess, quasi anti hill turn. Yeah. Uh, So I appreciate
2: that most of the people in this movie develop approximately zero percent from the beginning to the end.
1: Yes, there's no no growth at all. (laughs) Everyone's (laughs) the same. Everyone's a fucking same.
2: Yeah, like especially Zarkov. I feel like Dale like learned to be a little brave. Aura learned to be a little vulnerable. The Flash. Flash and Flash and Zarkov learned nothing, and Absolutely. Baron learned maybe to to listen more, but even then, not really.
1: I guess he learned to to trust his girl. I guess I don't.
2: I mean, I guess I guess he learned to like trust the men who can survive the stump test.
1: But shouldn't but he have done then, that anyway?
2: Flash was like kind of a dick about it and faked it. So, like, don't trust him. Also, I will just say that, speaking of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Baron's advisor is played by Richard O'Brien, who wrote the Rocky Horror Picture Show film adaptation of the Rocky Horror Show and also played Riff Raff. I mean, basically what Baron learned is Richard O'Brien is right, so shut up. Because (laughs) Richard O'Brien basically is like, maybe you should hear Flash out. And he's like, no! And he's like, okay. (laughs) Hilarious. He's right. And we, as the audience, maybe learn that fascism is bad. We haven't had a movie that's condemned fascism as hard as this in a while.
1: Hilarious.
2: (laughs) We're probably due for another fascism is bad, see, movie.
1: I mean, speaking of Star Wars, they believe if you save the life of, like, a white boy, we can redeem the ultimate fascist.
2: I mean, listen, (laughs) if you're hot... It's okay if you dabble in fascism for two-thirds of your screen time.
1: Actually, what, not even two-thirds is like 2.98. <laughs> I
2: I was trying to find a way to evenly fraction that, and it didn't work out. Just remember, ladies, if we were all skinnier and hotter, we could stop fascism.
1: If you become hot, you too can kill dictatorships in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> cat butts the microphone.
2: Wham. Have I ever mentioned that I really hate Rise of Skywalker?
0: Hey, what's up, everybody? WWE Hall of Famer, the Godfather here. Special shout out to B-Hyphen and Handsome Bane for the WrestleCast Power Hour, and it's available everywhere. Podcasts or streams. So everybody check them out, you know the Godfather will, and it's time once again for everybody at the Hyphen Podcast Group to come aboard the Ho train! Smelly or uh, later, sweaty
2: Marks.
0: Tequila. Hey Tom, Tom Cody, it's been a long time pal, how's your hammer hanging? How's it going, Clyde? (laughs) Well, not so hot. I got beat up trying to save your old girl. I could use a little help with those guys. You should have been there, Tom. It'd been like the old days when we were in school. We'd have kicked ass.
3: Hey, bartender, you gonna shoot the shit all night or you wanna give me another drink?
0: Hey, Tom, would you get a load of this little honey? She thinks she owns the place.
3: I'm just trying to get myself a drink, pal.
0: Well, maybe you've already had enough, babe. You gotta be kidding me. Do I look like I'm kidding? You no, know, maybe you ought to pay up as well. I've been driving up a cab here all night. We're not real big on credit. Are you trying to say that I can't pay? Yeah, let's see the color of your money. They're happy. Yeah, but now I don't like your face.
3: You know, everywhere I go, there's always an asshole.
2: Sorry, I just looked over and fucking Willem Dafoe with his goddamn fox face just said, I'll be be coming coming to her.
0: her. And And I'll be be coming coming to you, too. too. Sure you will. And I'll be waiting.
1: Yo, Willem Dafoe, first of all, let's talk about this fucking king. This guy is just a fucking menace and a great one at that. He's on the shits in this fucking movie, man.
2: So I'm assuming we're just fully pivoting from Flash Gordon now.
1: We um, are now talking about a rock and roll fable known <laughs> as. Oh my
2: my of fire. steelbook owned. Here's some nice tappy ASMR for you at home people. 35th anniversary edition, shout factory, uh, limited edition, streets of fire Blu-ray.
1: <laughs> yes, let's talk about it. Yes, awesome cover, awesome. Cover. Yeah,
2: oh yeah. It also has a little notch so the discs don't fall out. Which uh, I feel that they really could have learned for, for their Halloween release, where for whatever reason, only Halloween, the original, constantly falls out of the fucking case. Both copies I have does this. Halloween 2, 3, and 4 do not, because they have the notch.
1: Well, Kat, this is not a complaint about the Shout Factory. This is a podcast talking about streets of fire. Let's talk about the movie, Catherine.
2: My friend Anders showed this at his birthday in 2020, right before the world ended. Okay. And I watched it on silent because we were in a crowded area and I could not hear it. And I thought it was bad. (laughs) And then in May of that year, on one of our virtual movie parties, which we often did during the pandemic... He put it on again and I went, "Oh, this is good."
1: Hilarious. Hilarious.
2: Because Streets of Fire, if you thought Flash Gordon was a bad music video, <laughs> or a good music video but like a bad movie. I'd like to introduce you to Streets of Fire.
1: <laughs> it's it's I liked it. I thought I it was did pretty too. awesome.
2: I think it's amazing. But I also understand why everyone in the world, when it came out, went, "Huh." Hey?
1: I don't want to talk about my complaints this early. I legitimately have one complaint, I think, but I want to talk about your love of this movie before we get okay, to that. So first of
2: all, this movie is a sonic treat. It sounds amazing. I am wearing yes. these super yaki stuff, a rock and roll fable shirt right now. Sponsor us super yakky stuff. Yes, please. So basically, this movie is a Western-style film that was designed to capitalize on the success of MTV and is named after a song that was not approved to be in the final cut of the movie. Nice. (laughs) I have no fucking clue. Nice. Yeah, it's named after the Bruce Springsteen song, Streets of Fire. And two weeks before the movie came out, they sat him down for a test screening, and he went, no, take said, my song out of this right now or else. He said, so, Fuck this. <laughs> uh, they wrote the finale song in two days, Ooh, filmed and edited it in two days, and had it in the movie within five days.
1: I like it. Do you know who wrote it? I like that.
2: Yes, it's a Jim Steinman song. You may know Jim Steinman as the guy who wrote most of Meatloaf stuff. Because <laughs> now I'm praying for the end of time. It's all that I can do. <laughs> Jim Steinman. Legend. Yeah, no, honestly, king shit. Streets of Fire immediately has my soundtrack love because it is all Jim Steinman music and I don't have to feel bad about listening to it because I'm not supporting Meatloaf. <laughs> nice. All right, all right. And I'm also supporting a lot of the really great people that he worked with and provided a lot of sonic texture to, to the Meatloaf catalog. Fire Inc. is a lot of the studio musicians that Meatloaf worked with. Fire Inc. is uh, the name and the Attackers studio band name.
1: So for Shoots of Fire, why should people watch this rock and roll fable?
2: Well, you shouldn't watch it for Michael Perret, but everyone <laughs> woof, else, woof. everyone else is so good. Uh, you get to see Rick Moranis playing against type. You get to see uh, aggressive Alpha asshole Rick Moranis. <laughs> yes. You you much. get to see hot Willem Dafoe, which is not like a phrase I ever <laughs> thought I was gonna get to say. But hot Willem Dafoe.
1: Oh, I mean he's he's had some roles where he's Mister Mister Big Dick is back in town. This is definitely uh, one of those Mister D- Big Dick is back in town yeah.
2: roles. You get amazing lighting. Like this movie looks so good. There's a lot of neon lighting, there's a bunch of fun stuff. You get a lot of 80s reimaginings of the 50s, which are the funnest, in my opinion. You get a bang-up soundtrack, not just the songs, but also the, like, driving places music. A lot of that was by Rye Cooter, who's an incredibly talented producer and creator of music. You get a surprisingly progressive saw like narrative about... A guy and his lesbian friend and they are both war vets yes yes uh, you get young Bill Paxton Need oh, say yes. you get a movie that my dad described as the second worst thing you've ever made me watch
1: What was the first?
2: I don't know and he won't tell me
1: ooh, um, ooh, we gotta get to the bottom of this investigation.
2: He also go, uh, go. astutely pointed go, out No one was going for an Oscar In the script department And I'm sure the casting director Really thought she was on to something But no one else did
1: The answer is go by the way
2: It probably <laughs> is No maybe Scrooge. actually He really hated Scrooge. Oh yes.
1: Yeah. So, so, <laughs> so I guess go is third place Yes
2: Cat has the top two I just have to go Yes Yes, I, I, I honestly, bad. though, I feel like he kind of enjoyed being like, oh, it's Buster Point, Dexter! So it might be go. Hilarious. It might be go. Streets of Fire is so fucking fun. Yes. And it Wound is...
1: Wounda a ringleader, yes.
2: And to me, it is the most exemplary version of when you say, I don't like the cocaine 80s. I do. But it's gotta be about something else other than white men and capitalism.
1: <laughs> the Venn diagram this, is a pretty big overlap, though. But yes, yeah, I get it. This movie
2: is so cocaine-80s. <sighs> Shit's on fire. My my dad's biggest note was, motorcycles don't blow up like that.
1: <laughs> a, a gunshot to a motorcycle <laughs> incinerates an entire city block.
2: I love it. And then it, like, turns into the, like, 10, 9, 8, this is a countdown to love. Like, it's the tonal whiplash in this movie is a fucking nightmare. Everything about it is insane. But instead of it being, like, I-, I love my corporate job and I don't have time for a girlfriend or my wife or my family or, you know, being happy. It's instead, like, what if we've made a Western in the 50s that is also the 80s? Yeah. And themed it around the best soundtrack you've ever had. Now, I'm going to add a caveat here. Yeah. That this was initially conceptualized as one of three.
1: As a trilogy?
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Wow. That's pretty interesting.
2: And the idea was that each one was going to have... I don't know if it was going to be Tom Cody throughout all of them or if it was going to be Ellen Aim throughout all of them, but the idea was that there would be, like, two to three members of... Overlapping cast per film, and but, this movie withered. Except yeah. that it has a crazy cult following. So last year on Christmas Eve Eve, I took seventeen of my friends to go see
1: this. Jesus Christ!
2: In Jesus. fucking Cambridge, at the Brattle Theater, which is old and shows a bunch of really curated films. It's an amazing theater. I love it very much. But 17 of us rolled up to watch Streets of Fire. And everyone who came, no matter what they came for, had an amazing time. So the people that came because they wanted a movie that was bad, that they could laugh at, had a great time. The people who wanted to listen to the music had an amazing time. The people who came because they had no idea what to expect had a good time. Yeah. If you go in this thinking, up. this is an Oscar winner, you will be disappointed. If you go in going, Kat says this is good and I'll have fun. You will have an amazing time. And also, I think it's like 94 minutes long. It's not even a huge commitment.
1: pretty short, yeah.
2: And it also ends in a hammer fight.
1: (laughs) Uh, Willem Dafoe is fighting with his hammer in in more ways than one.
2: (laughs) Michael Perret in velvet pants and Willem Dafoe in leather fight with hammers.
1: Willem Dafoe shirtless leather overalls look. With his demon curls in his hair, in his pale skin, and so on, ten
2: feels like he wants to be in a Kubrick movie. He is constantly doing the Kubrick stare. He's constantly like, like you know, doing that shit with his head.
1: (laughs) I love this is a visual medium. (laughs) This is not a visual medium.
2: Funny, you know, yeah. he's doing the Kubrick scare things with the long pauses and the, the like tilting of the head in weird, like circular ways. Yeah. This is clearly his bid for Jack Torrance. That's
1: hilarious.
2: And he thinks he is nailing it. And maybe he, I is. Mean, but he then is. He says, I'll be coming for her, and I'll be coming for you too. Mm. And the way he delivers it is like my dad, who is like a very Italian Catholic man who does not often chuckle at sex things heard that and just went
3: <clears throat> Oh man. I,
1: th- I think Willem knew what he was doing when he said that bad boy. There are two things I want to point out. One thing that it It is kind of interesting how you talked about seeing this live in a movie theater, and that experience was great. It is kind of wild that this movie came out, what, 50 days before Purple Rain? And the experience of seeing that in a movie theater is actually just as fun. I know I know we, we have a lost episode about you disliking that movie, and that is totally fine, but the live experience for people who love Purple Rain is actually pretty fun.
2: I would but... also like to say, seven empty seats— yeah. In the Streets of Fire screening.
1: Yeah. The intro alone is worth seeing that in a good theater. So,
2: yeah. I will just say that Nowhere Fast, which is the opening song, was my most listened to song of 2021 and 2020 on nice. Spotify. It was also Greg's most listened to song. <laughs> um, nice. Our mental healths were doing great. Thank you so much for asking. Hilarious.
1: Now we are we are tiptoeing around the elephant in the room. We we shout out a lot of great things. We shout out the costumes, the noirness, the music. We 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 love this fucking movie. But it's just one fucking thing that if this movie was better at, I legit think it would be a four and a half movie. Michael Pere. I have a I have a legitimate question. Did they hire him because he was bad at the role and he was purposely bad, or what? Because he fucking
3: stinks. He's
2: the worst. He's so bad. Do you want to know the urban legend about why they hired him? Absolutely, yes. It's because he played Bruce Springsteen in one of the Bruce Springsteen music videos. Oh, man. And they thought he was Bruce Springsteen. Or at least popular with the Bruce Springsteen fan base. Which, oh. Streets of Fire, the song for which the movie is named, is a Bruce Springsteen song. Oh, it seems no. that they maybe hired him entirely to try to get in good with Springsteen, who then saw the movie and said, get oh. my name off this fucking circus.
3: Also, I would just like
2: to state for the record, I Can Dream About You, which is like a song you legitimately hear on like the oldies radio sometimes, is from this movie. The fact that Bruce Springsteen would be like, this is worthless, get my name off of this, is (laughs) wild to me because there are songs that, independent of the success of the movie, did well. Yeah. This would not have sunk Bruce Springsteen's career. I mean, don't get me wrong. Tonight is what it means to be young is maybe one of my favorite pieces of movie music ever, so I'm glad it exists. But like, who are you, Bruce Springsteen?
1: I mean, <laughs> to I'm make not, a
2: your judgment like that.
1: I'm not gonna lie. If well, when I saw this, I immediately liked everything. But I really just noticed how, if we had a better Tom Cody, this movie would actually fucking. It it would smoke more than... Michael Perret
2: is a brick. (laughs) And he has no interest in being anything else except a brick. And, like... (laughs) (laughs) In a movie where, even if the characters you don't like are just, like, dripping with charisma... Like, guy in gang that's only in the first three minutes of movie is, like, so, like, acting... It's yeah. super charming. His sister is like in it to win it and he's just I left for a reason. Like yes. what?
1: Like what? You, <laughs> If you look at every character, like every character actor other than him, everyone has a talent. Like the four singers, the even the yeah, even the, the even the 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 train driver in the inn who played Carmen San Diego for fucking uh, the the detective in *Where in the World Carmen San Diego*? Like Bill Paxton that we talked about. Yeah. Like there's so many people who know how to act, and for him to be the lead in this movie is so baffling. It's so you know what you you know *Back to the Future*. And how they yeah. pivoted to Michael J. Fox, I legit think that they would have had a Michael J. Fox pivot, not not even with Michael J. Specifically, but if they just pivoted to someone else, I legit an, do think Do you mean it's sort of an actor
2: with charisma? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, confident. no, I I fully agree with you. But also, there's something like weirdly charming about how little he visibly wants to be in this fucking movie. Yo, he's there getting the check He's like getting that he, check He is clearly supposed to be the everyman But their idea for the everyman Is what if the everyman Hated
1: movies Life like, I was say life. <laughs> Yo.
2: What if he knew he was in a movie And actively resented it
1: Yo, he treated this movie Like a shift at Staples He was just trying to get in and get the fuck Out, bro Like this shit is crazy.
2: Even even his sister. I'm watching the scene where she yells at him about like you act like you don't give a shit. Yeah. And it's like yeah, you're right. He does. Rick Moranis. Rick Moranis. I 1980. Mean. Rick Moranis. I mean. Let me just let me just restate that for the record. 1980. Rick Moranis is working his ass off. The two cops are working their asses off. They don't yeah. do anything.
3: <laughs>
1: yeah, man, it's, it's it's pretty fucking rough. It is pretty fucking rough, boy.
2: They keep cutting to his reaction shots and his face doesn't change. Like, <laughs> part of me wonders if if this movie got like discovered, like if this was like a standard movie that like kids watched.
1: Oh, they did not really have replays of this on cable. No, no, but 90s. I'm
2: saying if we replace Michael Perry with someone good and it got a bunch of replay, I don't know that yeah. it would that if that would be good.
3: <laughs> like, oh I don't
2: know that this movie I don't know how this movie does as not a cult movie. Because I think this would be a movie that would have just gotten stuck in the 80s. The thing that I like about this movie and the thing that I like about Flash Gordon is they were both too weird to die. And now they have these like weird extended half-lives of, hey, on Christmas Eve Eve, we're going to show this at 9 o'clock at night. Come have a drink and sing along with this movie. Hey, we have, like, album listening parties where we listen to the Flash Gordon soundtrack on vinyl synced up with the movie. There is such a weird, like, counterculture that exists. And if these were even embraced by the mainstream culture, but not to a huge extent, I don't know that they would still exist. I don't know that this Steelbook set that comes with not one, but two... Feature-length documentaries about the making of and fan reaction to *Streets of Fire* would exist, and I don't know if that would be a to anyone's benefit. You know,
1: that's a, that's an interesting point. That's an interesting point because I mean, we we didn't necessarily well we talked about it, but the episode died. Um, but if we kind of talk about *Purple Rain*, that movie is less than *Cherry Moon*. But Cherry Moon is really one of those movies that it, it legit came and went, even though it is technically a better movie than, than Purple Rain. So, yeah. I,
2: I would also argue that the fact that this movie is a hard R rating. It is? Yeah.
1: Why? <laughs>
2: I'm uh, Because of the woman in the thong in the bar. Oh,
1: oh well, I, I forgot about that queen. Ooh,
2: she was... Yeah, shout out to that queen for stripping Ooh. to bluegrass music. Um, oh, man. That was kind of hard Well. Yeah, no, it was But also, again, stripping to bluegrass music I don't know
1: Pay her for her talents
2: So this came out as an R in 1980 Trying to appeal to the MTV generation Who were all in high school
1: Hilarious It was dope It was a really yeah, good time It's, it was a really it's good time.
2: fucking fun And I don't think it made any money
1: Oh fuck no! Hell fucking no! It did not make any money.
2: Uh, it made eight point one million on a budget of fourteen million. Can I just throw throw some names out here? Why not? Because I think the the actual names in this movie, fuck, Raven Shattuck, Ellen Aim, of Ellen Aim and the Attackers, which fantastic. Tom Cody, Billy Fish. McCoy.
1: Clyde the bartender. (laughs) Fucking love it.
2: Yeah. Reva Cody. The Shirelles. Yeah. Someone clearly put so much care into this thing. Yeah. It just was received with like a wet match.
1: I think it's the lead. It has to be the lead.
2: It being hard R-rated but largely marketed to high school students. That definitely affected things, I'm sure.
1: But... Everyone was on the shits in this movie, man. I'm really... This is this is the set that you recommended, and because these two movies hold a special place in your heart, and I'm very happy you recommended them both. So, good job out of you. I do think,
2: though, that in both of these cases, uh, this is what happens if the cocaine 80s is allowed to use their imagination. <laughs>
1: in and, some little way, yes.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, like, I'm all for doing a bunch of coke and then writing a script about going to space. My issue is when you do a bunch of coke and then write a script about a normal guy who does not do coke, but then reads like a guy on coke. Yeah. My official takeaway with my problem with 80s movies is, if if it's about just like a guy, if it's about Phil Murray, uh, a guy
1: who was on cocaine a lot,
2: or, no, but just written by a guy who was on cocaine, who's like, this is how guys behave it's not how guys behave it's how guys on coke behave and there's a difference and that difference matters whereas like being like i'm gonna write about fascism on space i think makes a better movie
1: yeah uh, see where you're coming from
2: also apparently uh streets of fire is on turner classic movies right now so
1: nice, I'll watch nice nice and speaking of cocaine 80s i have the original world War Cop one in the background and it's the Shorna News pieces. Uh, Paulie Verhoeven, like, this guy, <laughs> he was on the shits, bro. He was on that I, white horse.
2: I think that I like that movie more than I initially did, now having time to think about it. Yeah. But I also think that a lot of the Verhoeven stuff that I notice is how much the director feels like a character in those movies which isn't necessarily a bad thing except for the fact that in the case of both that and showgirls to me the director feels like a white guy on cocaine thinking he is directing like a white guy who is not on cocaine
1: yeah
2: and so it is very noticeable at least to
1: me no i tell you.
3: i you. if you've enjoyed the episode Please subscribe, rate us 5 stars, leave a review and tell a friend to tell a friend. Follow Cat at Kat, underscore, Chinetti, on Twitter, Twitch, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Follow Marcus, at Show and Madlove, S-H-O-W-I-N-M-A-D-L-O-V, on Twitter and Letterboxd. Follow the show on Twitter at Kat and Mark. This podcast is executive produced by Callan Conley and Eric Greenley. Thanks for listening. We should do this again sometime.
1: This is a hyphen podcast production.